At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Best in Show, Episode 17. Best in Show is the only podcast dedicated to the show, Rabbit, and KV industry. If you are new to the podcast, my name is Alan Messick, and I am your weekly co-host, along with the driven and zealous Bryony Smith. Bryony and I are show rabbit industry devotees, having grown up showing rabbits and continue dedicating our adult lives to the ARBA and global show rabbit and KV industries. Our goal each week is to inspire, educate, and entertain with some of the current and past trailblazers across our industry, while also reflecting on our history and discussing current events and challenges within our shared passions. If you're interested in other podcasts about show animals, we highly recommend checking out The Show with Cannon Brown, a podcast dedicated to all things show livestock. And you can search for The Show through whatever platform you uh, happen to listen to your podcast on just by clicking in The Show and maybe even adding Cannon Brown to that. And we highly recommend listening if you're looking at diving into uh, things, you know, beyond show rabbits and KVs. Uh, he's got a really cool podcast with similar similar format to uh, how we do ours in terms of looking at history and, and current events uh, within the industry. As with every week, we'd like to share some comments from our listeners like you. Um, don't forget, you can post your comments on whichever platform you listen to our podcast, uh, Best in Show, whether that's Apple Podcast, Audible, or even Spotify. And of course, you can always send us your comments. We have an email address, and that's podcast best in show at gmail.com again podcast best in show at gmail.com and we'd love to read your comments wherever you may leave them whether that's as a comment and a five star on our apple podcast or spotify or audible or if you drop us an email so those two comments we'd like to read today uh, first one coming from christine burnett she's a seventh grade teacher in indiana she writes Brian and Alan, you are doing a really great job on the podcast. I have listened to most of them. And I'm taking up your challenge for the ARBA Distinguished Service Award nomination and would appreciate the template you offered to guide me in completing the nomination. Thank you for all you do. And just a reminder, everyone, that uh, Brian and I did put out that challenge. We would love to have uh, more Distinguished Service Award uh nominees and applications put out there to, um, you know, give a nod to those that have dedicated so many years to our industry. And you can find the Distinguished Service Award application on the ARB website at arba.net. And it's quite easy to fill out. It takes a little bit of time and research, but it's a way to really appreciate those that have 
sustained us um, for so many years. And, you know, in a year like this, when we're not doing a whole lot, we haven't been to a lot of shows, we're certainly getting back to it. It's a good time to, to fill out those applications and say thank you. And uh, as a, a reminder, those that do nominate and take us up on this DSA challenge, we will be happy to highlight uh, those recipients later in the year as those applications are approved by the ARBA. So thank you, Christine, for your comment. And we are super stoked that you're taking us up on that DSA challenge. The second comment I'd like to read this week comes from Chelsea Trammell. She's from the Midwest and she writes, thank you both for hosting the weekly podcast. You both are such an inspiration and I admire your stories and successes. So thank you, Chelsea, for writing in. Both of these ladies uh, emailed us at podcastbestionshow at gmail.com. And we encourage all of you to uh, do the same. And it doesn't always have to be positive. You can offer us some critique and maybe even suggestions for the future because we would love to include our audience who uh, dedicatingly listens to us every week in um, what we continue to do with this podcast. As a reminder, please like and follow and also share the Rabbitry page on Facebook, which will remain our hub and include links to current and past best in show podcast episodes. So if you're just beginning to listen to this podcast, fear not, you still may access all previously aired episodes of best in show with links found on the rabbitry page on Facebook. So again, like follow and share the rabbitry page on Facebook for um, updates, links and connections to this podcast and so much more to come. So we're mixing up our normal format this week um, so that Bryony can focus uh, the time of this interview on her interview with the legendary Glenn Carr. This will be a two-part interview with both this current episode 17 and episode 18 dedicated to the lifelong service of this ARBA uh, celebrated figure. And before Bryony dives into part one of this interview with Glenn Carr, I'd like to devote this week's educational topic to the Checker Giant breed. Um, with words from the book Domestic Rabbits and Their Histories by the late Bob Whitman. And you'll hear later on why I'm dedicating this episode's educational portion to the Checker Giant, but I'll give you a clue. It's because it was probably the most famous breed that um, our guest this week is known for. So reverting back to the book, Domestic Rabbits and Their Histories, I'm going to share some history about the Checker Giant breed. And it's a breed we know here in the United States, but it's been long going um, also in Europe. It's um, a breed that was developed in France and Germany. And there's a little bit of confusion if you look at books uh, from Europe on rabbits and their histories. And you see there's there's kind of two different breeds that, that look alike. There's something called the Checker Giant. And then there's also something called the Giant Papillon. And they are very, very similar. And they also originated in the same area around the same time. But the difference with the Giant Papillon in Europe is that instead of two spots on the sides, like we call for in our checker giants, or what we often call the loin and the hip spot, the giant papillon has at least three spots on the sides with an ideal of six to eight. So they have more spots on their sides. That's pretty much the distinguishing feature between the giant papillon and the checker giant breed, uh, both whether you're looking at them in uh, France or Germany or uh, comparing the checker giant of uh, United States to the giant papillon of Europe. So just to give a little more history on the checker giant breed, again, like they, like I said, they were developed in France and Germany, and they date back all the way to the mid-1800s. So they're a rather old breed in Europe, but it wasn't until 1910 that they came to the United States. 
And between 1910 and 1912, a total of four shipments of Checker Giants came to the United States, arriving in New Jersey and New York by local rabbit clubs. And if you look at this book, if you have this book, and if you don't, I highly recommend getting it. You can buy it through the ARB again. That's Domestic Rabbits and Their Histories. The photos of those early Checker Giants are remarkable because they don't look anything like the breed that we, of course, know today. So another little interesting fact, back when the Checker Giant came to the United States in the early 1900s, they came in black and blue, and they also had an AOC, and that stands for any other color. And one of those other colors that were common were actually torts. And the tort variety came about because in one of those early shipments, when the uh, American breeders put those those European genetics together, they came up with a, a ruby-eyed white, and they bred it to New Zealand. I have no idea why. <laughs> it was a red New Zealand. But they came out with a tort, and they thought, okay, well, this is going to be kind of cool. Let's make this a variety. So that's, in fact, what they did. But it wasn't until 1950 when the Checker Giant breeders got together and collectively decided that the AOC class would be dropped from the standard and that Checker Giants would only be shown in black and blue. And that's exactly how we know them today. So if you've seen Checker Giants or if you're studying for your test, maybe you're reading the standard, you realize that Checker Giants in the United States today are only recognized in black or blue. But at one time, previous to 1950, when they were a newer breed in the United States, they did come in other colors. And... Uh, another interesting fact here, the, the so actually several pages in this book are dedicated to the Checker Giant. And um, Bob Whitman, the author, the late Bob Whitman, concludes um, the, his chapter on Checker Giants. And he says, you know, there was, there was one famous Checker Giant in the United States. And it took the prestigious Best in Show title at the ARBA convention. And he, he says, quote, a flashy black senior doe named Cars Dasher, bred and owned by Glenn Carr of Columbus, Ohio, went on to win Best in Show at the 53rd ARBA National Convention and Show at York, Pennsylvania in 1976, beating out just over 4,400 animals for the coveted title. And he also goes on to say, now to get this, it was actually the first time Glenn Carr ever showed a rabbit at convention. Can you imagine? First time showing a rabbit at convention and then winning Best in Show. So without further ado, after the history of the Checker Giant, I'm going to hand it over to Bryony and her edu- uh, her interview with the legendary Glenn Carr. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. So let's start from the very beginning. When and how did you get into rabbits and who were some of your mentors? Oh, my. Okay. Um, I got into rabbits uh, when I was nine years old. My father brought home a couple of rabbits for Easter. That... uh, began everything and uh, a couple of three years later um, I stumbled across a gentleman that uh, by the name of Walter Caldwell that had uh, checker giants and so I was uh, enamored by him I had never seen rabbits that large in my life so uh, I started raising those and I actually showed my first checker giant in 1956 at the Columbus Rabbit Breeders Fall Show. And in those days, uh, it was one show that covered two days. Um, you had to go to the show site and drag tables all in and set up coops on them. And I spent the, the whole night there. Um, a number of us hung out there and um, helped set the whole thing up on a Friday night. And 
they judge some of the animals on Saturday and then they judge the rest of them on Sunday. It's uh, one show over two days. That's unheard of these days. But anyway, uh, that was my first show with a checker giant. Uh, I showed a blue six, eight buck and I was so excited. There were four in the class. And of course I had to wait clear till the second day before they were judged. And I was asking everybody there what they thought of him. And they'd all tell me how nice he was. And, so they finally got to the judge, uh, Judge Carl Sauters, which is an icon back in those days, judged him. I'll never forget it. And uh, he, unfortunately, was the first one off the table. <laughs> uh, he was fourth out of four. Uh, the reason I go into this story a little bit is because the one that won the class and also went on to be best checker giant that day was one that uh, my mentor at that time told me to get rid of. So I gave it to him to take to the meat market. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm kind of, I was a fiery little guy, and I thought to myself, well, I'm going to – this is not going to stop me. I'm going to go on with it. And so I did. I kept going and um, joined the Columbus Rabbit Club in 1958 and um, met a lot of wonderful people. Hartle Lux and G.A. Burke uh, were all in that club. At one time, we had uh, seven ARBA judges in that local club. Um, and, um, uh, let me see, 1958 also joined the American Checker Giant Club and, uh, the Ohio, uh, Checker Giant Club and, uh, just, uh, started mixing with people. I was, uh, only 15 at that time and so I couldn't drive. So I had a, a good friend by the name of Bill Steffens, who was a, uh, high school teacher who drove me around to the shows. Got to show my rabbits, and as the years went by, I guess I just kept hanging in there. I only had a little two-car garage, and my dad told me if I was going to raise rabbits that I'd have to pay for them. So I always had a job of some kind to, uh, to pay for the feed and the rabbits. And it wasn't too long before I occupied the whole, all the whole two-car garage. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his car sat on the street. But... Uh, so that's how kind of how I got started, and I had Checker Giants for years and years and years, and uh, I think I had a pretty, I was pretty successful at it. Uh, became the president of the American Checker Giant Club for five years, and also was president of the Columbus Rabbit Club for five years as a young man, and uh, so I was really hooked and doing doing pretty well at that time. So you started with Checker Giants as a youth, and was it? All open shows? Were there any youth shows back then, or how did that work? Yeah, you're correct. It's all open shows. I showed against the competitors. I don't think I ever showed in a youth show. Well, I know I didn't. There was no such thing. That came along later. And how were um, youth exhibitors received by the adults at that time? Well, there weren't too many youth showing Checker Giants, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I believe it. <laughs> So, you know, I guess um, they they didn't mind. I mean, I didn't hear any criticism. I was competitive. You know, I, I learned quickly what they were looking for, and I was fortunate to get some pretty good animals. And so I was very competitive. I won uh, the National Sweepstakes in 1960, um, and I hardly went to any shows because, of course, I was in school and couldn't travel that much. Uh, but uh, – 
I was well received, but I can't really tell you that I know of anybody else, any young person at that time that had checker giants. They were all old time guys, <laughs> all all men as well, except for one exception. There was Jeannie Maddox, which was uh, one of the first ARBA women judges, and and the and uh, she she was from Circleville, Ohio, and she was just a, a wonderful lady, and uh, she was the only lady that I know of that raised checker giants at that time. So that's been kind of the, not maybe the center, but a, a big place for checkered giants for a long time that Ohio has. No doubt about that. Yeah, we, we've had uh, a lot of wonderful, wonderful breeders in the state of Ohio, and our Ohio Checker Giant Club has a long history. And uh, Wayne Willman, who many would know, was the uh, president of the ARB for a while, was an avid checker giant breeder and judge. And um uh, there were a number of them. And my competition back in the days were a guy by the name of George Traxler, who lived in East Columbus, Jim Bennett, who lived in a little suburb of Columbus, and uh, they were the two kingpins at that time. And so uh, we were always running for sweepstakes. And, uh, um, but, you know, I was very competitive. I liked showing against them. The big shows of the year were the Ohio State Fair for me. Uh, I began showing there early on and practically ever since then. And if you won the Ohio State Fair with a checker giant, uh, that was really terrific. And and I did a number of times. Uh, one instance, I remember I won best uh, checker giant, and then they, they selected my checker giant as best in show. And then I was hoping they'd put a nice article in the local newspaper that next day. Well, they did. However, it wasn't about him winning. It was about him nipping some young boy's finger and uh, stuck his finger in his cage. Oh, no. I was quizzed and kidded about having such a monster checker giant, you know, that bit kids. But what they didn't understand is the rabbit wouldn't bother it if the kid hadn't stuck his finger in the cage in the first place. Of <laughs> course. I, I didn't get any good publicity out of that. A lot of <laughs> resin for a lot of years. <laughs> <laughs> so how many checker giants would you typically see in an Ohio show back then? Well, uh, you know, checker giants were very popular. Dutch checker giants, New Zealand's, and Flemish, I would say, were probably the primary breeds with big numbers. We would often see over 100 in, in the, the big Columbus Rabbit Show or, or one up in Akron or up in the Cleveland area. There were a number of checkers, and uh, more in northern Ohio than southern Ohio early on. As the years went on, why uh, the young gentleman from the south um, – I could name him Dave Freeman, which is presently our treasurer, was a father and son. Milt Freeman started raising checkered giants and for his son. And Danny Long, uh, Charlie Long was his dad. Um, they got started down there. Wilford Wells and Scott Wells, Paul Kurtzinger and Ted Kurtzinger. They were the, and there was another young man by the name of Cliff Floyd that still shows. All these gentlemen are, have been in the checker giants for years and years, but at that time they were all just young teenage boys with fathers that were promoting them. And uh, so Southern Ohio and was, became the hotbed of checker giants in the country. And to this day, pretty much still are <laughs> the only one that's not still in it. Uh, well, Ted Turk's in it. Scott Wells just um, let his last ones go the other day. And Scott's uh, well in his sixties. So <laughs> And Dave Freeman, uh, of course, everybody knows Dave Freeman, and his dad, uh, Milt, uh, just passed away at age 92. And so uh, 
that's one of my concerns about Checker Giants overall is that um, there's not a lot of young people that uh, uh, like to raise the Checker Giants, and they're they're a fascinating breed and uh, a real challenge. And they've and they've gotten so much better than they were back in, when I was a young man. I could go on and on about the breed, but we'll move on. <laughs> well, I think to some they're an intimidating breed. Um, you know, they're they're kind of known for things like nipping, and I think there would maybe be some judges to, that would be very nervous if they thought it, at any given show they could come across a hundred checkers. So, what would you say to people who are maybe a, a little scared of them? Well, that's a good question. You know, they're they have a bad rap. Checker giants are bred to be spirited. They're they're bred to run and and perform on a table to show off. If you get the proper tables where they have room to run and and display themselves, you really don't have to handle them much other than the initial checking for disqualifications. You shouldn't handle a checker giant any more than rather than when you go to place the animal. That's one concern is a lot of people try to hold them down and pin them down and they don't like to be pushed down. They want to move. They're bred to move. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is people and judges and people alike um, overhandle them. I think I mentioned that earlier. They, they overhandle them. They try to grab them and try to do things, and, and they don't like to be grabbed. They're not necessarily biters, but they are spirited. And if you pin them up in a real small cage and then you reach in to try to get one, they want out of there, and they might try to nip at you then. But uh, I can say honestly, uh, in my experience, I've been bitten way far more by smaller breeds than I ever have by checker giants. And it's all a matter of uh, respecting them on the table, giving them their space to let them run, um, and easily handling them, put them away. Um, you, you don't need to keep grabbing at them. Once, as I said, you, if you examine them, then you shouldn't have to handle them hardly at all after that. And uh, I know one judge that uh, had actually had to have stitches. I won't mention the name because it's kind of embarrassing, but this particular judge was so excited to check her giants and I was watching and she, uh, she was putting two out on the running table together at the same time, two senior bucks. And so she was looking to the right at the one at the, down to the right end of the table and she extended her hand across to keep the other buck from moving down. And she put it right in front of his nose you know, and she was looking down away and, and he nailed her. I mean, he was coming down through there and he didn't want anything to have her hand in his face. And she required some stitches, which is very rare. There's only been, I can think of two or three times where they've bitten so badly. But when they bite, they hurt. <laughs> yes, they would. So um, back in that day, were larger tables used for the running breeds? Were the, Was there usually like a, a bigger table for the checkers to run on or were they... Um, judged on the same table as the other breeds? Almost always bigger tables, longer tables. Uh, they they um, respected them. And, and, and again, shows back then were much less complicated or uh, much less um, entry-wise smaller. They were smaller, so they didn't need tons of tables like we do today. Tables are a value in, in a showroom. Uh, but Always and usually a long running table, at least probably 12 feet long, something or two tables or three tables put together. And uh, nowadays, the big national shows, they have an L-shaped table generally where the rabbit can kind of and sometimes even a U-shape where it's uh, 
eight feet by eight feet by eight feet, something like that. And they have holding coops all around there so that they won't jump off the table, um, which they occasionally will do that. But uh, and judges should stand back. I mean, I could go on and on about how to judge them. And if you respect them and you're careful, they're not mean. They're, they're not at home. They're not going to bite your arm off, that sort of thing. Once in a while, you'll get a mean one. But as I said a little bit ago, I, and I'm not going to name any other breeds, one in particular breed, that's a small breed, doesn't get over six pounds. I've been bitten more by that breed than any breed in the standard. <laughs> so, uh, you know, because they're big and they're intimidating, and that's for sure, and they like to move, they should move. And so you got to respect that as a judge and as an exhibitor. Well, I know that every year when the checkered comes out on the best in show table at convention and runs and stomps, you hear the audience you react to that. I mean, it's impressive. Well, you know, that's a that's kind of a, a sour point for me because uh, there's been times, and I, I don't want to pinpoint shows naturally, but yes, they're supposed to let them on a table and let them run. And so when you put them out there, uh, sometimes there's not enough table for them to run. Number, And sometimes the tables are all joined where other judges are working on other breeds down a few feet away. You know that. You've seen that. And so that what's this checker giant do? Be go running down, interrupting everything all up and down the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, there ought to be some way that, uh, that there, because there's other running breeds, you know, and it's the same thing. English spots and tans. They, they ideally you would have maybe a, a table that's at least uh, eight feet, 10 feet, something like that, where you could just put the running breed out there by itself for a little bit. Sometimes checker giant, any breed uh, that's a running breed, they need to get a little warmed up sometimes, too. Uh, you know, um, the best rabbit I ever had that won best in show, and I could go into that probably if you'd like, uh, she was a slow starter. Um, what I meant by that, if you just put her out there and let her run one or two times up down the table, she wouldn't show off very much. But I knew that, that she had it in her, so to speak. And I've judged it many times when I'd see a rabbit, and I'm thinking, you know, once that rabbit gets going, it's really going to be all right. What we're looking for is a full arch with a lot of daylight under it. So when they run and they stop, they make this pose. And uh, back to the best in show, most of the time, um, the judges are kind of like maybe scared of them. They don't want to interrupt the other judges. The tables aren't accurate. So the, the checker giant doesn't get a fair view. I think you and I were monitoring what were we doing that one show, and I was getting ready to talk about Checker Giants, and before I even got the name out, the judge had put it away, <laughs> and it was an awfully good one. <laughs> I think that person was just intimidated by it, and it's kind of a shame. So, so you are our longest-serving, still-active judge, and you became a judge at a young age. Um, what kind of prompted you to do that? And was it common for people to become judges as a young, at a young age back then? No, it wasn't common. Uh, nothing like it is today. Yes, I uh, was very fortunate. I had a lot of mentors. Harry Rice was probably number one. Anyone that's been in rabbit business for very long. Uh, he was a wonderful man and was an old, all time, old time judge, of, basically of New Zealand's. But, uh, he took me under his wing as a young man and encouraged me. As we went along and he judged checker giants and he liked the animals I was raising. And he kind of mentored me, uh, toward, uh, going on to become, he, I guess he saw something in me and decided that 
and uh, that I would uh, maybe make a good rabbit judge. And at the time, uh, Harry Rice, uh, this will interest some people. At the time, he was both a rabbit and guinea pig judge, cavey judge. Uh, and a lot of people don't know that, and he dropped that years later. But uh, anyway, so when I was still a teenager, I, of course, joined the ARBA and as soon as I was eligible, I let my membership drop one time. And as soon as I was eligible, I became a registrar. And I, I just felt like um, I watched some of these people judge Checker Giants, and I thought, you know, I could do that. I hadn't thought about any of the other breeds. It was all about Checker Giants at the time. Uh, I knew I could do a better job than what those – and I guess I just had the drive and moved on and just fate had it. I, Harry uh, encouraged me. Hartle Lux encouraged me. G.A. Burke encouraged me. Those were the local judges that uh, – uh, knew of me and so became a registrar and I had to wait a little while to even be qualified to be a, you have to be a registrar I think two years I think that's still a fact is it not I'm not sure my memory but yeah you have to wait two years well during that two years I had guinea pigs I had cavies so I decided well back those days all you had to do was take a little written taste test on cavies and 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 uh, pass the judge that uh, you take the test under a little oral thing on it, and you became a KV judge. So I became a KV judge a year before I got my rabbit's license. <laughs> I got my KV judge's license in the fall of 1964, and I got my rabbit license in the, the fall of 1965. So my first actual rabbit show was in January of 1966 at the age of, let's uh, see, what would I have been? I've been 23. I got my license back when I was just a little over 21. And back in those days, there was another gentleman I think many, many people would know is Paul Jergalonis, who was younger than I and, and became a register judge when he was in his teens. But that was a rare thing. I mean, that was a rare thing for someone that young. Uh, it was a, it was a mostly older gentlemen, older men that uh, had their license. Yeah, he's, um, I believe, one number behind you. You guys are the two longest active judges that we still have serving today. So what was the judge's licensing process for rabbits like at that time? Has that changed substantially? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I had a lot to do with that probably when I was in office. Uh, As I recall back then, you had to take a uh, written test. Of course, you had to be uh, in the ARBA a certain period of time, I think five years, and you had to be a registrar for two years, and uh, I think you had to register 30-some rabbits, which still is in effect. Those things were pretty much the same, but the written exam was totally different. My written exam was about, uh, I'm going to say, 36 questions, Uh, all essay-type questions, uh, or most of them, probably 90%. I just remember one of the questions was like, describe the body type, fur, and color of the following breeds, and there was like 10 or 11 breeds. That was one question, one thing, one question. You had to sit there and write out, okay, American chin, blah, 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 checkered giants, blah, blah, blah. So you'd write pages. And it took me oh, at least four hours to, to answer those 30-some questions. Um, and I was fortunate enough I passed on the first try. But looking back on it, uh, uh, and, and later on I became um, – I might might want to get into that. They would send it off to a panel of three judges that were secretly grading them all. And they weren't graded back in those days by the secretary of the ARBA. They had a secret three-judge panel that 
only the president and the secretary supposedly knew who they were. So you had to wait until they graded them, and then they came back, and they'd say, well, you missed this question or that question, but you made it okay. And I don't, you didn't get a grade. You, it was just a yes or a no. <laughs> and uh, I was fortunate to pass the first time. But since then, as you well know, now it's a very a panel. I mean, the, the questions are all based on the standard, and there's, there's no um, – essay type things. What I mean is that it's all backed up by the standard. You either you get it right or you get it wrong. There's no gray area. <laughs> um, and of course you have to work more shows. I only had to work, I believe three shows after I passed that test. You know, I take that back. I had to work the shows first and then take the test. That's another thing. I had that turned around when I became secretary, you had to, uh, work your shows first and then take the test. Um, is that the way it is now or it's the other way around? I get confused uh-huh. here. Now you take the test first and then you work right. your shows. And I think that changed right. maybe sometime in the early nineties. I, I think it was shortly before I, um, applied for my registrar's license. Well, I just remember I was the guy that instigated that because it just seemed the reason, but I can just give you a little, a little hint there. There was one particular applicant that loved to work behind the table and all they had to do is t- pay a fee and we sent him six or eight envelopes and you work behind the table, he would work with these judges and he had two years in which to finish all the work and he would never pass. He was so terrible. He'd get behind the table and he obviously wasn't judge uh, material. (laughs) So he would fail six and we'd send him six more and he'd fail those. Well, he worked a total of 24 shows in that period of time and he loved it because he got to go behind the table and act like a judge. And I thought, that's just a total waste of time. I mean, goodness, he wouldn't pass the test if he ever took it. So we're going to eliminate it. We're going to turn it around. So they got to pass the test first. Then they can work the shows. So <laughs> it was based on one particular applicant. And, you know, that fellow tried many, many times. He never did get his license. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how certain people will push rules and processes to the limits. So they have to be changed. Right, right, right. Well, he he had a, you know, it was only like $50 or something, a small fee to even apply. So he was having a grand time getting behind the table and acting like a judge. And, and, uh, you know, it was was really a waste of time, really. So this is the better way. If you get through the test, and it's, you know, I've told many people, (laughs) when you take the test and you pass it, it doesn't make you a judge. You know that. And all judges should know that. It just tells you you have a license to move on to become a judge. Working the shows, uh, you know, that they just want to test you on the practical part of it. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that could probably sit down and pass the written test and have very little knowledge of rabbits. Uh, but they're smart. They're book smart, as I call it. And the practical part, working the shows is very important. And uh, then they have to get six, I believe, um, approvals out of eight shows. Isn't that correct these days? And, uh, yes, it is. Yeah, back then there was only like three shows. Uh, wow, so you would work your three shows and get approval. Did you have to get approval from all of them, do you remember, or just two? or Two out of the three, I believe. You could you could fail one. Okay. But uh, uh, then you got your license. But, you know... A lot of people weren't, I mean, there was always a shortage of judges back in the day and still are because shows are much bigger. There's, you know, many, many more people, many more breeds. And so 
it's a critical shortage. So it's people say, well, make the test and things easier so that more people can become judges. But then on the other hand, are they really qualified? I mean, when they get behind the table, I tell this to a lot of people, too, and I, I firmly believe this. To get your license, it's just a license to continue to learn. You would agree with that, I know. I mean, you never, never, ever know it all. You learn something all every time you get behind the table, and you should remember that. When you think you know it all, that's when you get in trouble <laughs> as a judge. <laughs> that's very true. Yeah. Very true. So it sounds like overall the process has changed so that while the test comes first to make sure that the applicant does have some very basic knowledge about the standard and applying it to breeds, um, the number of judge increasing the number of judges and moving the test away from you know essaying and kind of ambiguous scoring has put a lot more emphasis on you know only licensing those who are able to handle rabbits, place rabbits well, give good comments, and really go through the mechanics of judging. That's basically the truth. Yes. And again, I, we need to improve constantly. One of my probably pet peeves, my experience working with a lot of, uh, I believe you even worked with me one time. Did you not when you were a young applicant? I did. Yes. We worked for, uh, I worked for my judge's license with you as a show in Missouri and we did a whole bunch of dwarfs and then a whole bunch of Flemish. <laughs> Well, uh, the, the one thing I see is, and, and it continues today, is all judges are not, in my opinion, are not um, good, um, um, what's the word I want to use, um, people to, tr to, sh to uh, work under because uh, – there's a lot of inconsistency on how they grade you, you know, some of them uh, – uh, or most of them, I should say, I'm stumbling here a little bit. They're afraid to to say no. There may be your friend. They may be somebody as just a young person or something. And think, well, they'll they'll get better. I'm going to pass them because they'll get better. Or, you know, I, gosh, uh, I don't want to lose their friendship. If they know that I failed them. I, I don't want to do this. There's so much of that that's going on in the past and still is going on. I just think that. I don't have the answer for it, so I shouldn't be complaining, but I do think that there ought to be some way to uh, maybe uh, determine certain judges across the country that um, would be more of a, a fair, um, not a mentor, but someone that could, could be fair in the judgment of any applicant that works with them. I hope I'm making the point. I don't know if I'm making that point clear, but... There's too many people still today that I think they get their, they pass their test. They've raised one or two breeds. They've been in the ARBA five years. Uh, it doesn't matter whether they're young people or in their fifties. They get behind the table and they purposely pick their friends or people they know has a reputation of being an easy judge and they get through the process and become judges. Well, that's fine, but does that really serve what we have? I mean, that really takes away from quality judges. Some of them go on to be good judges, but at the cost of a lot of mistakes and things when they're behind the table. A lot of them get a few shows and they disappear. <laughs> so I think that's something that, um, as I said, I don't have an answer for it, but the point I'm trying to make here is too many times judges are afraid to turn someone down that 
They just won't do it. And uh, and they know that there's a question on there. I think you recall it says, would you show your rabbits under this judge? Yes or no. On the part that you send back to the ARBA. <laughs> and they'll put on their no and yet they pass them. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember who you worked with for your license? Uh, for my rabbit license, I worked with Harry Rice. I worked with... Um, uh, let me think. I can't think of his name now. The New Zealand breeder. Um, and see, names are the ones. It'll come to me in a minute, but I can't remember the name now. I know that, um, as you know, since I worked with you, I was pretty young when I got my license. Um, mm-hmm. I just turned 19. And so I felt a lot of pressure to not work with the Kansas judges that I knew and not work with my friends. And I deliberately worked with judges that I knew were going to be tough on me. Um, I worked with you. I worked with Chris Hayhow. I, my last show was with Tex, who was, of course, the standards committee chair at the time. Um, so uh, and I think that that experience and that challenge was really helpful. And that's why today you're a good judge, because you work with them. And if you weren't, if you if you weren't very good, they wouldn't have passed you. Those are the kinds of judges that, you know, you got to show your stuff. But, you know, I mean, there's lots of them out there that are just afraid. to. T- I'm not saying give them the benefit of the doubt, things like that. But uh, on the other hand, it, some of them make it very easy. I mean, I could go on because I, I had a firsthand look. I, I looked at those exams when they came into the ARB office when I was secretary for 22 years. You know, I saw all that stuff. I could see what was going on out there. It's just not me thinking that. I could prove it by all the reports that would come in. And the judge would say negative things about needs this and needs that and not very good here and then passed them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. And you say, why? Well, you know, they just don't, they just don't, they thought, oh, well, they'll learn, they'll learn down the line. (laughs) So it's kind of been a topic of debate the past few years. I know it's come up at judges conferences a few times, Um, whether the shows worked with a judge are the purpose is evaluation or the purpose is like training and apprenticeship. What is your take on that? Oh, that's a good question. It's both. It's both. However, the evaluation is the most important. You can't help but learn behind the table. If you're there to be evaluated, the judge, if he's doing his his uh, good work, you know, he's evaluating, but he's also he can't help but teach the guy or a lady or whoever the applicant at the same time. I've always felt like, and I feel like I'm a very good teaching judge, but primarily I'm, I'm analyzing and I mean, you, you give them challenges like you're supposed to give them a class to work, right? They're supposed to place the animals the way they think they're to be placed, at least one class in every breed. And then you go back and see how they did in there and why they did it. That's evaluating them, but it's also training them at the same time. Cause if they mess up, you show them what they should be in your opinion, of course. <laughs> but, so it's, it's both, but, I think a lot of people forget the evaluation part and they just get back there and train them there uh, or vice versa. They don't tell them anything. They just make them stand there and hardly use them at all. I mean, I guess that tells me that tells you that, that there's a lot of uh, variance in, in the way judges handle these applicants, a lot of discrepancy, a lot of, a lot of different ways. And, it varies all over. And there ought to be maybe some more information, training or whatever information sent out to judges that are going to to have someone assist with them so we can get a little more continuity and, and 
a little more just like that question you just asked. What is more important? Both of them are important, but the evaluation is a number one. I mean, if you don't think they're ready, uh, it's not good enough to say, well, they're going to be okay down the line. I mean, if they get behind the table, uh, um, I mean, I've had judge applicants get behind the table and you say, okay, what, what variety is this of a very common breed? And they've never seen one before. <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> well, you know, that's not terrible, but how much do you know? <laughs> so yeah. I, I hope you get my point here. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to your early days as a judge. Um, what was that like? How did you get bids? How did you travel to shows? How far did you go? What was common back then? Well, I was looking at my old books. Do you know, I may have mentioned this to you. I probably, I don't know if anybody does this, but I have kept a record of every show I've ever judged. I've got, I'm in by my second ledger. And I even looked at them a little while, a little while ago, just to kind of refresh my memory. Uh, I put down the date of the show, uh, where the show was, and how many animals I judged approximately, as near as I could figure, and the amount of money that I got. And I look back, uh, my first rabbit show, uh, let's see, it was the first show was 1966, and I, I judged uh, 150 rabbits and was paid $20. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, <laughs> I just was looking, it was about, uh, I don't know, it was uh, those books are here. I don't want to dig them out at the moment. I didn't, I didn't receive $50 for a show until like the fourth year I was judging. And that was a lot of money. That was like a specialty show, <laughs> a big specialty show. But, uh, it was, uh, you know, I think, I guess I was blessed. I think, um, generally I just had a knack and, um, I did have experience with a lot of different breeds, even though I raised checker giants. I mean, I, I fooled around with a lot of different breeds. I had English spots and I had uh, Polish and things like that that were popular back in those days. There was no such thing as uh, mini lops or mini satins, and there were no dwarfs in those days. <laughs> uh, Polish was the, was the Polish and Dutch were the two main breeds in those days for the small rabbits. So we had a lot less breeds to deal with. Checker Giants and Flemish Giants were the, the really big breeds. And, of course, the New Zealands and Californians and Champagnes were the, the meat breeds of the day. So um, the shows that you went to and the shows that were held at the time, did they tend to have more kind of area judges? Did they get judges from across the country? Or how, would they, how did that work? Oh, no, you're right. No, we didn't travel at all. Traveling by air was unheard of, very, very rare. They were local judges. They could drive in from adjoining states, but uh, not anything like today. My goodness. Uh, no, they. most of the time, uh, if I was, lived in Ohio, I might do a show in Indiana once in a while and once in a while in Michigan, very seldom in Pennsylvania, Um once in a while in Kentucky, but for years, you're just pretty much local. Uh, the first time I got in a plane was to the ARB convention in 1968. I was able to get in an airplane and fly out to Boulder, Colorado through Denver. I'd never been on a plane before. <laughs> that was quite an experience. I looked that one up. I uh, judged uh, 127 checker giants, and I did normal colored fur. And I didn't get paid, and I came back home, and I was waiting and waiting for the, the general chairperson said the judges will be, be sent checks. And I got a check for $26 and some cents. 
it turned out we were paid 20 cents a head. <laughs> wow. Well, we're paid a little bit better now at convention. Yeah, yeah. What was the first convention that you attended? The first convention, um, I believe, was in 1968. I'd have to get my book. Okay. Yeah, 1968 was my first one. Pueblo, Colorado. Pueblo, Colorado. Then I, uh, 1970 in Syracuse, 73 in Detroit, Michigan. The reason I couldn't go to conventions prior to that or, or judge was because of my job at the time. I couldn't take the time off. I was raising a young family. so. <laughs> well, I think a lot of good. people now can emphasize or empathize with that. Um, but 1974 was a big year for you at the ARBA convention. That was the year that you won Best in Show with a Checkered Giant. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was 76. Oh, 76. Okay. Yeah, 74 was Ventura, California. All right. See, so you've got your book and I don't have mine. That's okay. <laughs> well, yeah, 76 was a big year. Believe it or not, that's the first year that I showed any rabbits at a, at a convention. Really? And, yeah, it was at York, Pennsylvania, so I could drive. And I was beginning, I I'd, uh, wasn't working in a job where I was limited. So I was in, got into the real estate business where I could, my time was my own. So. And I had a, I was pretty hot that fall, winning best in show around Ohio with a couple three checker giants. And actually, that's the first year that uh, someone talked me into running for director of the ARBA, and I was elected director. And I served as a director for the first time in 1976 at York, Pennsylvania, my first term there. So that took, was a big year. Yeah, and uh, my wife and I went, and I took four checker giants. Wayne Wilman judged him, which at that time was probably as good as Checker Judge was in the country. I had a uh, junior doe that was doing a lot of winning. Uh, and I'll try to keep this short. And I was really hoping that she'd do well. So uh, I showed a junior black buck and uh, well, I showed a black senior doe first on the table. And she was two weeks bred. Um, and she looked kind of nice. And he made her first, which I was very happy about that at the convention. I was thrilled. The junior bucks came up and I won that class with the junior black buck. And boy, that just, I was on fire then. <laughs> My best rabbit was coming up and sure enough, she won the class. I, all three of the blacks I entered were first place. I want, showed one blue senior doe and she came in second and that's exactly where she should have been. Uh, Fred Bisky had a doe called Bangs was there and she was a beautiful doe. So I was very happy. But when he went to pick best, you know, um, he picked the senior doe, best of breed. And I, <laughs> The fiery little guy that I was, I was kind of upset because I liked my junior doe a lot better than I did the senior doe. <laughs> <laughs> Here I win best of breed and I won best opposite with a junior buck. So I win best of breed and best opposite. I'm not real happy because my best rabbit <laughs> didn't win. <laughs> i never forget that. I just kicked myself. What were you big dummy? But anyway, when best in show the next day, and that's another topic we could get on to. I don't know how much time we have picking best in show and how it's evolved. Back then in 1976, they started it in 72, if I remember right. But this was the first convention that I showed at. But they gathered around just to ta two, put two tables together. And the two judges, there were two judges that got back there. And they brought the breeds up. They picked best four class and best six class in those days. And they kept, they'd look at them and then they would keep one or two. And then they, and I wasn't going to put her up there because she was two weeks bred. And I didn't think she was that good. And my wife at the time said, well, 
you know, put her up there. I was afraid they might mishandle her and I didn't want her to be hurt. And she said, put her up there. And if they don't handle her very, just politely go up and take her off the table. And I said, well, okay, I'll put her up there. So they put her on the table by herself and she never looked better in her life. That dough showed off way beyond after she won best of breed. She was just on fire that day. She stomped and moved up and down the table and those two guys just let her show off. They put her away. Well, they brought the breeds up one at a time. So if they didn't want to keep it, they sent it back. Well, usually the New Zealanders and the Californians were the ones to beat in the sixth class. And they kept sending them back and they didn't want them back. I'm thinking, I just beat the, the New Zealand and I just beat the Californian and I'm starting to get a little excited. <laughs> so they picked the Checker Giant best six class, which I was over the moon over that. I just couldn't believe it. There were probably maybe 50 people standing around watching it. It's not like the big productions of today. <laughs> Let me tell you. Uh, they did the four class and uh, I was sweating and they picked a silver for best four class, believe it or not. Oh, wow. The black silver. So two unusual picks. So then I won best, best in show with the checker giant. I had to leave. Of course, I had to get out of the building. I, you just couldn't, I just couldn't imagine. It was so thrilling. So I just to give you a little personal so i was so excited and i'm thinking i want to get this huge trophy and uh the banquet was that night and of course now i'm a director too so i have to sit up on this with the other people i didn't know that <laughs> this was all new to me and they're going through the program at the banquet and i'm thinking when are they going to talk about my trophy and my winning <laughs> you know through the whole banquet not a word was said about who won no no awards were given nothing about the, the winnings. It was all, all introducing people and awarding other things and that sort of thing. So I thought, well, okay. I went to the superintendent and I said, uh, it says in the catalog here that there's a trophy for best in show. And he says, oh, yeah, I'll get it for you. That was after the banquet. Well, he didn't the whole rest of the time we were there. Well, they released the rabbits on the last day, which I think was like a Thursday morning. And I went up to him and they're tearing down the cages and my rabbits are loaded up. And I said, I hate to bother you. I'm not going to use his name, but anyway, I said, I hate to, he's an old timer. I said, I'd like to have that. He said, Oh, I know where it is. It's back in this back room. So we walked back in this old chicken building and there was a little room in there and there was a little box about four by four in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I opened it and it was a pen, a pencil set or a pen set with a plastic pen with a little platform, you know, with it's <laughs> that was, and there was no inscription on it or anything. It was just, that was the best in show award. <laughs> wow. So there was no uh, Fibber Cup or anything like that. No, it's come a long way, a long way from that. I, that's, uh, it's wonderful these days, just wonderful. Do you remember uh, that, how many rabbits were in that show? Yes, um, somewhere in the 4,200 mark, believe it or not. That's all there were. Back then, that was a pretty good show, 4,200 and some. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that um, you didn't take rabbits to convention until you could drive. Was that kind of the norm then? Did you have people, was it common for them to drive cross country? Did people fly with rabbits at all back then? No, they drove. No, no. There was very few flying rabbits, very few. Yeah, no, there might have been a few come in by train or something like that, but it wasn't uh, It wasn't common. It, each year, after you know, as we went along, there would be people that would begin to fly them, you know, uh, in and it was not expensive, but uh, it was a hassle. And so 
most people drove in from distances. And they, you know, when that's why they kept saying, you know, we got to have them on one convention on the East Coast and one on the West Coast and one in the middle. We, there's always been talk about centralizing it, but then it's not fair. But these days, with the way travel is, of course, today it's very difficult to fly rabbits anymore, isn't it? And <laughs> expensive, but uh, people do drive long distances, that's for sure. A lot better than they used to. I know I do sometimes, even though I always start in the middle. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like it. I never more than a two-day drive from anywhere in the continental U.S., so that's kind of nice. Yeah, that's that's true. Back in those days, that was unheard of. Very rare would people come from that far. So you mentioned that 1976 was the first year that you were on the board. Um yeah. So tell me about that. What prompted you to run for the board, and what was that like? Well, it was quite an experience. Uh, you know, I was very naive, um, but I was encouraged here in Ohio to run. Back in those days, there was no districts. It was We were all directors at large. And it was a good old boys board. Uh, not that they were bad, but it was a lot of old timers, um, that were on the board. Uh, Jimmy Blythe, of course, was the secretary and had been for years and years. And she's uh, now missing some names, but they were all old timers. Uh, Mel Behrens was on there from New York, and, um, and, uh, from out in, out in the West Coast, Northwest. Um, I can't even think of his name now. That's the sad part. And anyway, they were from all over, but they were old gentlemen. And I just somehow just got the idea that I'm just going to run for director to see what happens. And, um, and fortunately it was a, a nationwide vote and I was, I was elected along with a fellow by the name of Bob Bennett. He and I were both uh, young men uh, going on the board with all these old timers on there. Um, Bill Kennedy was on there from Pennsylvania and uh, I replaced a gentleman out of the Northwest country and my, I wish I could remember Brian, his name right now. Other people listening would probably know he'd been on the board for years and years. And supposedly that's the fellow that I replaced. I, I don't know whether he was, I don't know. The, he ran, but he didn't win. And so there was going on the board. How was it like? I, I was intimidated to somewhat, but I was excited that I was going to be on this board and uh, had already, you know, run Columbus Rabbit Club. I was experienced at meetings and, and how they worked and that sort of thing. So I wasn't just a totally guy off the boat. You know, I know a little something about meetings and organizations and that sort of thing. And the, the, the old boys were, were, uh, were polite, but I could tell that they were bitter at both of us for coming on the two young punks kind on here trying to take over or whatever. Their attitudes were not that didn't give us much chance to say much of anything. And the other thing that, that I was upset about, I found out after I became on the board in 1976, I won best uh, in show. And so they said, well, you know, you can't show next year. And I said, why is that? And they said, well, we have it. If you're on the board, you can't show rabbits at a convention. Really? And I, yeah. And I said, well, where's it say that? I mean, that was the last I'd ask it early on in the meeting when somebody brought it up and I, I looked all through the bylaws and show rules and I finally, and I couldn't get an answer. So when it was under the good of the order, I raised my hand and asked uh, the president and I can't, he's a Flemish old time Flemish beer out of Minnesota. Anyway, that's terrible. I can't remember the names, but anyway, 
He just said, it's a gentleman's agreement that anybody on the board will not show rabbits. And I said, why? <laughs> that didn't go over well. <laughs> and they said, because you, you, you need to spend more time with your constituents out there. You've got to mix and mingle with people and shake hands and be a politician, in other words. And, and I said, but you only judge one day or just for a little while. And, and they, they held to it. They said, no, you can't judge. So in 77, and it went to Texas. Uh, that was my second year then. See, I only served two years as for a term, so I served in 76 and 77. They said, are you going to run for 78? And I said, no, I'm not running anymore. I don't want to be on this board. I, if I have a choice between judging conventions and being on this board, forget the being on the board. I want to show my rabbits. <laughs> yeah, so you couldn't judge or show if you were a director. Uh, you could uh, judge, but you couldn't show. Wow. No, no, I take it I take it back. You could show but you couldn't judge. Wow. You could show but you couldn't judge. They wouldn't want you to judge because they wanted you they said you gotta mix with the people. They want you out there among the people. <laughs> so how did we go from directors at large to districts? Well, at that time, that probably involved me somewhat too. Um they were experimenting. They had a quasi-district assignments, kind of areas of the country that you pretty much represent. And Cy Lowett, that's who I replaced. I knew it would come to me. He was from Washington State. And they basically thought I replaced him. And so the president would kind of say, okay, we've got this kind of area and this, this director's from here and here. And it was kind of a quasi, you represent this area. And guess where they said I was going to represent the people on the board of all places? <laughs> the Northwest of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> so here I am in Ohio. I'm trying to write to people out there and say, look, um, I guess I'm supposed to represent you. Technically, I represent the whole ARBA. We're all at large. You know, we represent everybody. But they felt there was there was pressure coming to bear that people want to represent it from their areas is what they were it was coming to that and that's the reason i'm saying all so members had been asking for local representation on the board and that's kind of what spurred this change is that correct yes uh in 77 uh, it came before the board to consider making districts and the board at that time uh, turned it down they didn't think uh, they wanted to do that and so they reported that at the open general membership meeting at the 77 convention in Texas and the membership just uh, uh, complained so much about it there. They got up and was very uh, upset about it and they made the board promise that they would go ahead and make districts before the next convention, which they did. They made the nine districts and they couldn't necessarily place everybody that was on the board at that time in those districts. But as, they went off the board, then the replacements would have to come from certain districts. So that's where it all began. They just, uh, I don't know if they caught the part where I was, when I came on the board as a, as a, did I get, did I give you that part about when I came on the board? They gave me, before districts, they gave me the Northwest Territory as my area to represent. Yes, they did. <laughs> okay. All right. So I won't get so. through that again. So I actually have an old DR from 1981. I've got a handful of old ones. I was kind of flipping through to see if I could find some interesting stuff before this interview. And lo and behold, I did. In the president's report, there's a little paragraph that says, 
It is with the unanimous decision of the board that I appoint Glenn Carr of Powell, Ohio, to fill Mark Roller's unexpired term. Many of you will remember that Glenn left the board because of the policy that restricted ARBA officers and directors from officiating at conventions. (laughs) Glenn is not only one of our association's top-rated judges, but is also a tough competitor on the show table. So I assume that that rule had then changed. That's right. It was. (laughs) (laughs) And I replaced, uh, see, I went off the board. And while I was off the board for one year, Mark Roller was the that time then was the director he moved to texas so it made a vacancy so they appointed me to fulfill the last year of his term so i was a director for actually three years two years one term and one year in his term and then after that i became vice president for one term <laughs> and then um during your vice presidency another position came open is that correct yeah that's so you talking about the club liaison no, no, no. I'm talking about the position on the board you moved to from your vice presidency. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was vice president at that time. I didn't remember that, but I was looking it up here. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I was in real estate here in Columbus, and uh, my personal life was kind of having some problems. The real estate business was not good. Nothing like it is today, believe me. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, did I make the right decision? But yes, I did. No doubt about it. But uh so, you know, I just kind of gave it some thought and I went to the Houston stock show and Connell Edison was there, our dear friend Connell. And, uh, I mentioned it to him. We're sitting there talking and he said he was thinking about it. And I said, well, what would you think if I applied for that job? And he just thought that would be great. And I said, well, I don't want to compete with you. And he said, no, no. He said, you go ahead. If you're going to run for that job or want that job apply, I'm not going to do that. He, he just backed right off. So I went ahead and applied and, uh, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into is how it came Well, what be. was that job? First of all, secretary of the ARBA. All right. That's how most of our members will know you. And yes, uh, tell us all about that process and how that came. <laughs> Okay, well, um, Dr. Reed was the president, Ed Pfeiffer was the secretary, and they they put it out there taking applications for that particular job. Eddie was going to resign effective um, uh, 1973, as I recall. No, 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 uh, 83. I get times mixed up. He was appointed himself in 73, I believe it was. So anyway, and Dr. Reed was the, the president, and um, – I submitted an application and I was really kind of just feeling the, I really didn't have my heart in it because I was, I, my family was here in Columbus and you'd have to move to Illinois. And that was a big, I'm a homeboy. I didn't, didn't want to leave Ohio, but I'll try to make a short story out of this. I applied and, and uh, they, they selected five potential nominees to come to Bloomington and be interviewed. And I was one of the five. Um, the others that I can remember was uh, Scott Williamson, who was just uh, graduating undergrad school there in Illinois. Everybody should know Scott and dwarf breeder and judge. Uh, David Freeman, who's our current uh, treasurer, was a very young professional guy. He was just at graduated college, and he was working in test laboratory testing uh, flavors or that kind of thing. And uh, he thought he might like to have the job. Um, there was a guy out of Kentucky that I can't remember his name now, and there was someone that came 
that was that applied that was uh, not even basically in the rabbit business, but he was in the management business. But anyway, we went to Illinois and were interviewed by just Doc and and uh, Eddie. I don't want to go into too much detail about how that went, but when it was over, uh, the, res- the we'd all were going to go home and Doc Reed uh, asked me to stay behind and have lunch with he and his wife. And I had my son, John, with me who at the time was 14. He had driven over with me from, from Ohio there. And he right away, he just said, well, the job's yours if you want it. Uh, it was that quick. After the interviews were over and everybody was going home, there was no consulting the board or anything. <laughs> he he said, the job's yours if you want it. So he told me how much money I was going to make to start, and it was way less than I was making already in, in Ohio in the real estate business. And I just said, what? I said, I, I can't come over here for that. I understand that Ed made a particular salary, and I thought I'd get pretty close to that because it's what it says in the bylaws. It was spelled out what the secretary's salary was in there. And he said, well, that's all they will offer the first year. And I said, well, I don't think I want it. And so he said, well, I'll give you 24 hours to think about it. I want an answer yes or no in 24 hours. If you don't take it, we'll move on. I said, okay. So on the way home from Illinois to Ohio, I was not going to take it. I just was done. My 14-year-old son talked me into it. (laughs) Uh he just explained to me how I was, it was in my blood that I was doing so well with the rabbits and I would be happy in that job. And he just gave me a sales job and he knew that the real estate business was not doing so well. Things were really tough all over, not just in our company, but all over in those days. So by the time I got home, I decided, well, I guess I'll try it. So I called Doc Reed and I said, I'll take the job. And I think he I fell off his chair. <laughs> and I won't go into the reasons why, but. I was appointed then, uh, the board then approved me for to become the secretary. And I started in, I uh, went over there in, uh, let's see, June of 1984. Uh, and Eddie retired January of 85. So I was there for about seven months in training before I actually took the job over. And believe me, that job's changed an awful lot, changed an awful lot since those days. We did a lot of in-house printing. Uh, today, that's all done outside so later on, you became known for getting a new breed recognized with ARBA, the Trianta. Tell us a little bit about that, um, how you were drawn to the breed and how that project began. Okay, well, it began in Switzerland. Uh, I was uh, asked to, to be a guest at the National Box Show in Switzerland, uh, and the ARBA uh, paid part of my agreed that I would go over there as an ambassador to their national show. And that's the first time I'd ever been in Europe or whatever. But anyway, I flew over there and I spent it, uh, a week over there with some, some people and had the time of my life. It was wonderful. They're rabbits, of course, a lot of breeds we don't recognize at all. But one breed that caught my eye was a Saxon gold there is what they called them. And uh, I found out that uh, it was the breed that was originated out of Holland called the Trianta. The Saxon golds were a little bigger, all, but the red color was just eye appealing to me. I thought, gee, we, we have no red like that in this country at all. They were just a gorgeous bright red color. So I didn't think too much about it. I just knew they were beautiful there. Um, I believe it was the following year at the National Dwarf Show that I went to. Um, my wife and I went down into the Ozarks and, uh, judging the National Dwarf Show and, Lo and behold, here's a pair of these Triantas sitting there for sale. 
there was a guy out of England. He was a, turned out to be kind of an agent sort of a guy who had brought them over here to sell them. And I saw them, and I thought there was a buck on the dough, and I thought those look great, you know. And so this is a quirk. Uh, I decided to, I'm going to ask my wife if uh, she likes them, I'll buy them. If she doesn't, I won't. <laughs> and I asked her to come over, and we looked at them, and I said, do you think those are pretty? And she said, yeah. I said, do you think you'd like them? And she said, they're pretty. So I bought them. Uh, if she just said, no, I don't want them, then <laughs> there may not be Torontos in this country. So that's the first two I had. And, of course, they had a litter. There was first litter was seven, and their four of them had bad teeth right off the bat. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> Connell, Connell found it. He came for a visit. He wanted to look at these babies. And by the time he got through all seven, four of them had bad teeth. So <laughs> that was my start. So from that on, I had imported. I got connected to people in Holland where they originated. The first batch that came over, um, there were three bucks and five does. And the color wasn't what I expected. It was more of an orange color. It wasn't really the dark red that I had expected to see. The two that I had bought, and I found out later, were not from Holland. They were from Germany, and they had the darker color. Anyway, the three bucks were just atrocious. But uh, So I kept the does, and uh, there were a couple other people in the United States by that time that had imported some. Uh, and the, the one lady, uh, Judy Graft, actually heard that I was getting them. Um, so she got the COD on hers before I got mine in. I was kind of unhappy about it at first, but it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Because, you know, you have to present them three years and get past, get them passed and all of that sort of thing. And so it gave me time to import some more and get what I wanted. I found out that I wanted their calls. I wanted their dark rabbits not the orange ones. So I visited with the person over by phone or whatever and, and imported a third group of them, which were much better. So I worked from that to develop the Triantas, and she presented twice and failed two times, so I took over. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get them through in three, and I'll tell you, that's probably one of the most difficult things I have ever done in my rabbit world. And that was a very challenging thing. It was very difficult. You had to keep certain animals, and uh, Triantas breed a lot of bucks. You get, I don't know what it is, but um, my final year, I, you know, I had to breed certain ones to certain ones to get, uh, uh, you know, you have to show improvement, first of all, from year to year. Tex was the chair of the Standards Committee, and he was pretty tough. And the, and the Standards Committee at that time was pretty tough, too, so... I was fortunate to get them through the first time. The second year, uh, they were pretty good. I could show my juniors showed fairly well, and so they passed them. The third year, I was really nervous because my best buck was in a heavy molt, and uh, I had another buck there that was slick, but he probably was not going to be as good as the buck before, and I really fretted over it. I won't go into a lot of detail, but I was under a lot of pressure, so... Uh, they passed at the Indianapolis Convention, and um, Scott, well, Scott Williamson was on the committee, and some pretty tough guys that really knew what they were talking about. And uh, it was a thrill, a very thrill. And so they were accepted as, I believe, the 47th breed in the ARB standard. And it's taken a while. They're getting better all the time. Uh, the first problems we had early on was the, the small gene pool. You can't breed a Trianto to another breed like some people tried Florida Whites and other things. You just ruin both breeds. You've got to breed Triantas to Triantas. You can't breed them to anything else and, and maintain what a Trianto is all about. And, of course, I could go on and on what they're looking for in a Trianto if you want me to do that. We'll just 
Yeah, Let's please do. Um, I think we know that their their original body type in Europe was a lot different than what we look for. Well, it wasn't a lot different other than the way they pose rabbits over there. It's the way they pose them. They kind of set them up. They want to set up on their front legs and hold their head up. If you've ever seen a lot of English or, I mean, a lot of European breeds, a lot of their breeds are, are posed differently. They have a, a different body style, kind of a tubular kind of a look. And I copied their standard, the, the, the Dutch standard, the, the Nolan standard. I copied it verbatim with one exception, and that was I wanted the darker color. I wanted the red. I didn't want the orange. Triantas, orange is the national color of Holland, the Netherlands. So they wanted a, an orange kind of a red. They don't use the word red. They call it an orange. And so, you know, I got their off their, their calls, which were darker. And I, I don't know exactly what they were made out of, but they were made before World War II. And when the Nazis invaded uh, Holland, they made them destroy anything that, that represented their national color, their flag. So the Triantas had to go into hiding. They were most all of them destroyed or eaten or whatever. There were very few after World War II over there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so uh, all I did was darken them up and, and, and called for a bright red. And there's no word orange in our standard over here. And the other thing I changed it. Well, it was originally we didn't uh, talk about headset, and now we say let the head be in its natural position. It's not wrong if it's on the table. It's not wrong if it's up higher on the shoulder. Wherever that rabbit wants to pose its head, we discourage judges to hold down their head like they do a lot of small compact breeds. They push them down and tuck them up, and they want the the head on a, on a triumphant to kind of show because the head is unique. The shape of the head is unique if it's the right kind of shape. It's uh kind of a full-cheeked head and short, stubby ears and big brown eyes, and and their head is kind of attractive if it's the proper, what we're calling for. Some of them have it not at all. They get narrow and pear-shaped. It's kind of like on a Dutch, you know. <laughs> they call yeah. for a certain kind of head, and there's a lot of them that don't have that kind of head. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a unique head in the U.S., although we're starting to see, I know, the Czech Frosty is similarly built. Yeah. Um, right. And there's a COD out for a blue holliser, which is another right. rabbit that's similarly built. And people seem to be really fascinated with those big heads and those thick ears. Well, there's a lot of them in Europe like that. They, they, they have that shape of head. A lot of breeds like that over there. Uh, but I was more interested in what, you know, what really caught my eye was the color. And that's what we, we work on more than anything. It's the most important thing is the color, of course. And it's, uh, it's difficult, and uh, and they want a compact body, of course. Uh, we don't want them like a Florida white. That was the first thing we had a problem with. Everybody was – most judges were – because of the same weight as a Florida white, four to six pounds, uh, a lot of judges at the time thought, well, they're nothing but a red Florida white, so we're going to judge them with a big, deep loin and hard and firm and all that kind of thing, and that's not – that's, there's no there's no resemblance of the two other than they're the same weight range, <laughs> and they're both compact rabbits. <laughs> but otherwise, body style are totally different. It's a rollback fur, and um, the, the genetics of it all, which I'm not very good at, but we do have a guidebook that uh, there's a gentleman in there who used to be an ARB judge years ago. Uh, his name is Kloss, K-L-A-U-S-S, and he was a ARBA judge back in during the war, and he's a phenomenal geneticist, and he's written up on what, how uh, the triumphs are made up genetically. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting. So yeah. how long have you had triandas then? Well, let's see. What uh, I think the first ones I got were in uh, about 98, 99, somewhere in there. And they were accepted into the standard board in 2005 or 2006, something like that. 2005, yeah. Uh, somewhere in there. You, you would probably know. I could have to look it up. Uh, and again, dates confuse me anymore. But yeah, they, so yeah, and you're I still have, raising them. Oh yeah, yes, I do. I have them, and that's the only breed I've had for a long time. I did, I did uh, dwarfs for years and years, and uh, I just had to make a choice. And you know, the club has just done fantastically well. We have a, a very stable club, um, a stable membership, uh, a lot of volunteers. We just had our national. We're, we're financially in good shape. Uh, we've uh, created a, a youth scholarship fund, which you give a youth a scholarship every year now to some deserving Trianta youth breeder, and uh, I couldn't be more proud of that. Um, and uh, it, and it's uh, people thought that it was just uh, you know you got a lot of criticism at first about them. There are there are there are. A work in progress. I mean, they're getting better, but there's still a lot of them on the table that are far from the standard, you know. But they have come up now. We've had a few best in shows here and there, and that they're 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 a lot better than they were eight or ten years ago. They're progressing, getting better, and the gene pool is better. There's been some shipments come into the country that helped spread the gene pool. But for a while there, I was worried they were all too closely related, and everybody had everybody else's line, that kind of thing. So as time goes on, I see progress, and uh, they're just a beautiful little red rabbit. That color really catches your eye, and uh, so I'm pretty proud of them. They, they're not world beaters. Uh, you know, they're not going to be thousands of them like there are in the dwarves and the mini rex and those kinds of breeds, and mini satins. They're just a stable breed that, that are a challenge, and they're good mamas. They're easy to grow, and they get big enough, fast enough that you know that you can use them for meat purposes if you want. Uh, I can tell you this: I don't sell a lot of pet shops, but when I do have a few to pet shops, they go first. The pet shops oh, just love them. It's about the color, and there's no doubt in my mind it's the color. These people see those little red rabbits, and they just fall in love with them. <laughs> Yeah. So well, it sounds like there's a good group of people promoting the breed and welcoming new breeders in. Absolutely. Very proud of the club. We have a great national secretary and and uh, we just have a good board of directors that work well together and and as I said over the years we've we've become financially stable. We have a guidebook and uh, we it's a very good strong club with not very many issues at all. <laughs> well, that's yeah. an accomplishment. So um, one last question for this portion of the interview. This is something we ask everyone. Describe your perfect rabbit show. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> perfect rabbit show. Wow. Okay. Let me think about that. Perfect rabbit show. In today's fast-moving society. Well... We're we're going more and more to no show remark cards um, because they're so cumbersome. And I can see both sides of that. Uh, I haven't really determined in my own mind whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but there are pros and cons. It moves the show along much faster, and it's a lot less 
complicated if you don't have show remark cards. Uh, but the exhibitors, if they're not at the table, get nothing out of it. Um, you know, you're rabbits and you go up and they're judged and you come back and they're off the table and you didn't learn anything. You weren't at the table when your rabbits were judged. And I find that to be a lot happening a lot of times. I tend to say, well, if there's nobody at the table, I don't need to say much. So there's a show rule that you're supposed to give comments on every animal. But when there's nobody there <laughs> at your table, either you're doing a bad job, you're boring or something, nobody really cares, then why do you give this long list of things good about the rabbit or whatever, kicking the animal? Um, I got off on a little tangent there. but uh, <laughs> Well, and I think it, a lot of that it, comes it, down it, to it, exhibitor choice. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's entering multiple breeds and, you know, being several places at a time is often a choice that people make. Right. Well, and show remark cards have its flaws, as you well know. You know, I mean, there's been times that you're given these comments and you see the comments on the card. One time I, I sent a couple rabbits off to a show with another fellow and he came home and gave me the two remark cards. One was best of breed and one was first off in the class. And the remark cards had the same comments on both of them. <laughs> they are only as good as the writer so that's exactly right that's exactly right and, so uh, tell us more about your perfect rabbit show a rabbit show to me is where people want to go to measure up the breeds that they're raising and trying to improve to measure up and, and compare to what the other breeders of that breed have that's my idea of the purpose of showing rabbits raising rabbits and going to a show it's not necessarily just to go and show it time after time after time just for the fun of showing it, whether it's women or losing or whatever. Uh, I want to, when I go to the show, I want to try to have the best ones there. And if I don't, I want to see what's beating me and what I got to do with my animals uh, to make them better uh, as a breed so that I'm proud of the breed. In my triantas, that's real important because I want to see the overall breed, whether I own them or not to get better. Back to my question about a perfect show. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's so many aspects of a show from a judge's perspective. Uh, maybe that's what I ought to say something about. I don't know. Uh, I don't think uh, uh, judges should be expected to do enormous amounts of rabbits. They, you know, there's some shows you go to and they're, they're so overwhelmed. They're expected to do two fifty, three, 350 rabbits in a day. You can't really, anybody, even really good judges have a hard time judging properly that many rabbits uh, and you know and i know any mark breed like dutch checker giants english spots take longer to judge because you got to analyze markings and give them time to move and things like that where florida white you just pose it up and you can tell whether it's any good or not in a matter of seconds <laughs> yes so it, it takes there's so many variables in that so what makes a perfect show you know uh, it's very difficult because so many people go with different reasons, you know, and I know why I go and why I think people should go, but there's people that go just to socialize and have a good time. And it's a, a great family thing. Um, kids show their rabbits and that's wonderful, you know? Um, uh, so I don't know that I can really answer that in any one phrase. I mean, there's so many variables to the show. I like that, though. I mean, and that's something that we've talked about on the podcast a few times is that people are here for different reasons. You know, this hobby kind of scratches a different itch for 
you know, all sorts of people. For some people enjoy the aspect of competition and always improving their animals and comparing them and, you know, getting feedback to continue on that, that I kind of be, I tend to be that way myself, but you're right. Some people it's about family activities. Some people it's just about socializing or working with and mentoring youth. And all of that is, is a great reason to be at a rabbit show. Absolutely. I do think though, that for the sake of the rabbit though, Brianny, these shows that are judged four times, four and five times in a day are, it's getting out of hand. As I said, right early on, you know, in the old days you had one show and it usually took two days to get the rabbit judged once and they were all cooped. And that's where regular shows, that's not conventions. Every show, they expected them to be cooped. Carrying cases were just a vehicle to get them there and get them home. They didn't keep them in there overnight and things like that. We've become so, uh, everything's in a hurry. <laughs> and they want them shown three and four times in a day. And I, I just don't, I, I, that's just not my cup of tea. But some people, they don't care. It's fun and they get a thrill of winning a little bit and then the next show they might not do so well. And so then they start comparing one judge to the other and (laughs) (laughs) just so many things. So whatever floats their boat, don't you agree though, that the rabbit uh, shows are are just very other than the pandemic. They're just, they're really very healthy. They're doing great. I mean, they just grow and grow and grow. Whoever thought we'd have conventions with 24, 25,000 rabbits there. The convention I won Best in Show with, there were about 4,200. Look what it's come to now, you know. And if you have less than 10,000 at a convention, that's not such a great convention. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's a small one. You know, we talk about the, some of the conventions on the coast have been, you know, fifteen to 18,000. And we talk about, oh, that's a small convention. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it's grown and grown. And so you can't argue too much with it. You can't expect everybody to be top nuts breeders uh, they just want to go and have a good time and they breed a few and their kids are having a good time and we have great youth programs all the way through i mean the arba's got a lot of good things going for huh? i'm sold on the arba all the way through there's a lot of good things it's a great family hobby for so many times uh, even in the checker world as i mentioned earlier it starts off with the kids having a rabbit for a pet and then 4-h and the next thing you know it they're off to college and the parents keep going with the rabbits <laughs> yeah yeah we talk about that a lot too how you know the the youth programs in 4-h is a gateway to getting people into rabbits but a lot of times it's not the kids that stay it's the parents that's right that's right you know, there were a lot of kids, you know, back when uh, I took over as secretary, you know, the uh, ARB membership was up around 40,000. And a lot of those were kids. California was a huge state for kids out there. And they had all kinds of forage things. And that's all kind of gone by the wayside. Um, they're way down. And uh, there's so much competition for time. And I'm sure that the computer has a lot to do with it as well. <laughs> rabbits used to be you could get a merit badge in Boy Scouts for rabbits. Did you know that? <laughs> I had heard that. Yeah, in Boy Scouts, it was a big thing in Boy Scouts to raise rabbits <laughs> to learn management, you know, skills, uh, animal management, that sort of thing. So our world's changed and things have changed, but the Airbnb has survived it all. And I, I, when you see all these people at the show, I, I just – I guess the thing I'd hate to be negative about is that I think we try to cram too much into one day for the rabbit itself. If I had a really good rabbit, I sure as heck wouldn't show it four times in one day. I don't care how good it is. 
it would be very good at the end of the four days. By the time it gets handled by four different judges and all the going back and forth and moving around, and I, I, it just to me, I'm, I'm more uh, I'm more uh, conscious about trying to keep my animal uh, healthy and in good condition. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's definitely something for everyone to consider. Yeah, yeah. It's just hurry up and go, hurry up and go. When, when's the next breed up? And hurry up and get done. We want to get out of here. And hurry, hurry, hurry. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of modern life, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, but I guess I'm old school. I, uh, I well, like to watch a good judge work on good rabbits and do a good job. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Glenn. This was fascinating. I think a lot of people are going to enjoy hearing about all of the <laughs> history you have made and witnessed and um, we'll be back next week and talk a little bit about your time in the office as the secretary and then executive director of the ARBA and some of the things that um, were accomplished during that time. Okay. So we will talk next week. Well, that was a fantastic interview, uh, Bryony, with the legendary Glenn Carr. I, we're so lucky to have him. He doesn't often uh, speak in public and uh, he's of course, enjoying his retirement these days, still raising rabbits and judging a few shows every year. I certainly can't wait to see him at a convention. He is a, a face that we all love to bump into. Um, but reflecting on that interview, there's two, two things that, that resonate with me. And one being Glenn Carr's nostalgia for the more intimate ARBA shows with less of the go, 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 you know, sort of like shows were when he began in rabbits before, before we, we, got into the the double, triple, quad specialty show kind of atmosphere that we all know so well today. And I guess maybe that resonates with me because this weekend I judge a very small show in Portola, Calif uh, Portola Valley, California at ARBA judge Carol Green's backyard. And this is a show that she's been doing for years, but it's dedicated to just a few breeds. And this year she had uh, Fuzzy Lops, which is a breed that she raises, and Angora. So we had, you know, just a handful of rabbits, a handful of breeders. I think there maybe were 70 rabbits there all day. And it was just, it was really wonderful. If I could use the word chill, it was totally chill. We did it in the backyard and um, it's a beautiful atmosphere there. There were friends. And what was really cool is that, you know, we were able to take it slower. We got to uh, analyze the rabbits maybe a little deeper than we normally would have, think deeper. And we had lunch with our friends. And then there was also like a, an opportunity to learn more. Um, Nate Burbage was there and I, he was watching my judging and, and he's like, I'm just loving this guy. I'm, I'm getting to hear things that otherwise I wouldn't get to hear because either he would be judging at a show or he might be, you know, running around trying to get the next class ready, but he actually got to stand there and, and listen. And, and those are rare opportunities, especially if you're a judge. Um, but the other judge there yesterday with me was Courtney Collins and she's brand new. And I often kind of sympathize with her because I can't imagine getting your judge license in in the last year during COVID when you know, you're so excited and I get to finally have my license. It works so hard for, and then beep, beep, beep. There's like no shows. So she's, you know, finally getting some of these opportunities and she loved the show yesterday because um, she doesn't come from an Angora or wool background. And while those are the breeds she had to judge yesterday, American fuzzy lops and uh, at least three of the four Angora breeds. And she said, wow, this was such a great opportunity for me to, to be here amongst these you know, top breeders and, to really kind of take it slow. And then at the conclusion of each breed, she would, you know, politely say to the exhibitors, how did I do? Do you have any suggestions? And that's something that I was just really forward thinking of her. And I really admire her for, you know, taking that, um, that position to be like, Hey, this is a great day to, to learn how I could, you know, 
improve my game basically. So Courtney, she sent me a text last night. We were just kind of chatting and she goes, I loved the small show yesterday vibe. That vibe, you know, it it allowed me to, to learn so much today. And I love being able to have time to talk and learn from the exhibitors. I feel like that normal shows I get lost and I don't always get a chance to talk to anyone because I'm so busy. I mean, that just makes so much sense. And it makes sense to whether you are a brand new judge or you've been judging for 50 years, you know, those, those slower shows are, those are rare and, sort of coveted these days. Uh, the second piece of Glenn's interview that really kind of struck me was his reflection on our judge licensing process. And I'd like to conclude with something that that he said. And every week we do end with a quote, and I'm going to use the quote from his interview as my quote this week. And he says, earning an ARBA judge license is not a license to judge, but a license to continue learning. I think that makes so much sense. I mean, so many of us have been doing this for a long time. And of course, there are people that have been doing it even longer. And if you ask any of us, we say, we never stop learning. There's something to learn every single day. So with that, that concludes episode 17. Again, part one of Bryony's interview with the legendary Glenn Carr. Don't forget to tune in next week, episode 18, where Bryony goes back and does round two of the interview with Glenn Carr. So as every week, as Bryony and I like to say, talk rabbits and talk havies. See you next week. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.